0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Michael is with us today. Michael doesn't really need any introduction, as you all know. Michael is a senior research fellow with the Griffith Asia Institute. And today, Michael is going to talk to us about the external and internal drivers of Kazakhstan's multi-order diplomacy policy, sorry, multi-vector diplomacy policy, and that approach to managing its relationship to
1: Okay. So
0: I'll Cheers. Um, thanks, Michael, for the introduction. I suppose I'll provide a little bit of a quick context for this paper. Firstly, there's really an extensive literature on secondary state responses to China's rise, but very few of these studies look at Central Asia in that context. So this paper is really seeking to make a contribution to that particular IR literature, but also to uh, more Central Asia-specific literature. So why is Kazakhstan important uh, to China to start with? Well, firstly, it presents an interesting case in terms of China's position in Central Asia uh, as Kazakhstan shares an extensive uh, border with the PRC, uh, has a substantial Uyghur diaspora population that resides uh, in a number of the major urban centres, notably Almaty uh, in Kazakhstan, and since the early 90s there's an extensive trade and economic relationship which has developed between the two uh, largely on the basis of Kazakhstan's uh, hydrocarbon uh, resources. So these factors have contributed over time to a strengthening uh, relationship between China and Kazakhstan. In June 2011 the relationship was transformed into uh, what the Chinese refer to as an all-around strategic partnership. China is currently surpassing Russia by some estimates as Kazakhstan's major trading partner Uh, With bilateral trade volumes reaching uh, approximately 25 billion US dollars in 2011. Kazakhstan is also a key partner with Beijing and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, one of Central Asia's preeminent multilateral security organizations. So, all these activities and close ties between the two have have led some to suggest that Kazakhstan is in fact bandwagoning uh, with a rising China. However, today I'm going to argue to the contrary. Um, that Kazakhstan's response uh, is not necessarily solely driven by increases in China's material power in Central Asia, um, but also by a process of regime legitimation. Uh, where the Kazakhstani elite is attempting to use the challenges and opportunities that China's rise poses uh, to sh- consolidate their domestic legitimacy. China's uh, growing power nonetheless provides incentives for the elite to bandwagon with China, but this is offset uh, by increasing societal ambivalence regarding Chinese influence in Kazakh uh, society. And, and finally, Kazakhstan's multi-vector foreign policy, I'll suggest, has emerged uh, as not only as an externally directed hedging strategy... Uh, aim to maintain a balance between China and Russia, uh, but also an internally directed one uh, that can be used to manage the increasing divide between elite and societal perceptions of China's role in the region. So I, I've chosen to sort of attack uh, these arguments in, in four main sections. Uh, the first will briefly look at uh, the relationship between foreign policy, legitimation, and, and the Kazakh context. Uh, The second, I'll briefly uh, give an overview of Sino-Kazakh relations from the Kazakhstani uh, perspective and and suggest how uh, these close ties with China are portrayed by the Kazakhstani elite. The third section will then counterpose that official kind of view of the relationship uh, with the range of Kazakh expert and public opinion on uh, China's role in, in the country. And finally, just briefly... Conclude by suggesting how the multi-vector foreign policy approach uh, of the Kazakh government may actually assist um, the elite to, to balance uh, this divergence in elite and public opinion on China. So in terms of foreign policy legitimation and the Kazakh context, I suppose I'd start with suggesting that there is a, obviously a, a extensive literature and IR theory uh, regarding secondary state responses to rising powers, Um, most particularly Walt and Schweller's sort of debate about balancing or bandwagoning. I'm suggesting here that the Kazakh case uh, illustrates elements of balancing in terms of Walt's uh, notion of seeking security from uh, a rising power, Uh, and also Schweller's notion of bandwagoning in the sense of bandwagoning for profit, seeking to uh, align with the rising power. Ultimately, however, I'm suggesting that this can be explained by the fact that Kazakhstan is in fact hedging uh, against China's rise. Um, And this is driven not only by systemic level factors in terms of changes in the balance of power, China's growing material power, but also the domestic uh, issues related to uh, the the quest for legitimation by the Kazakh regime itself. So if this regime legitimation model, in a sense, is correct, then we should expect that a growth in China's relative strengths may not necessarily have an inherent effect on state reactions. Rather, whether or not the structural change will cause smaller states to fear China will depend on whether the state's ruling elite will perceive the power, will perceive sorry China as a boon or a bane for le- their legitimation efforts. So what then is the link between foreign policy and legitimation? Um, and Johnson suggests that foreign policy is central uh, to legitimation since foreign policy is, among other things, a process and manifestation of defining boundaries between in-groups and out-groups in the modern state system. Foreign policy reproduces the in-group, that is, the nation-state and its differences from others. He also goes on to suggest that foreign policy that is designed to increase domestic legitimacy will be aimed to increase the in-group identification with the sovereign state. And by definition, this requires widening the gap between the values and norms of the in-group and those of the out-group. Finally, he argues that foreign policy can achieve uh, this particular aim in two ways. Firstly, through what he calls positive foreign policy processes... Uh, that seek to reaffirm the values of the in-group, that invoke pride and self-esteem, uh, that comes from being a member of a highly regarded actor in the international system, or negative policy, uh, foreign policy processes that invoke disdain, distrust and competition with the other. So how, then, does this relate to the Kazakh context? I suggest that this uh, is it resonates with the Kazakh context for, for a variety of reasons. Um, to start with, the Soviet... Uh, Era elite in Kazakhstan essentially inherited Kazakh independence with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Therefore, the elite, which is led by I'll talk about him in a moment, President Nazarbayev, uh, essentially had no nationalist prestige in a sense to fall back upon. Geopolitically, as you uh, illustrated in the map, China is uh, Kazakhstan is caught between uh, Russia and China, which brings with it a number of complications for for the for the Kazakh government. Um, beyond this, at at the time of independence in 91, the ethnic demography of Kazakhstan uh, raised questions about the legitimacy of, of the new independent Kazakh government, uh, given that Kazakhstan uh, was, in a sense, div- equally divided between ethnic Kazakhs and non-Kazakhs, uh, with Kazakhs making up about 40% of the population, and at the time of independence, there was about 38% of the population, ethnically Russian, 6% Ukrainian, 5% German, and so on. Um, uh, The the presence of the significant German population, as an aside, was largely a result of Stalin's deportation of the Volga Germans uh, during the Second World War. So, anyway, this ethnic demography uh, caused a number of pressing issues for for the Nazarbayev uh, regime. Uh, First and foremost was the fact that the Russian population was generally concentrated in in the north of the country, um, which, in a sense, posed a secessionist uh, threat particularly in the early 90s with a number of leading Russian politicians and and public intellectuals in a a sense questioning the legitimacy of the inclusion of these areas in the independent state of Kazakhstan. The geopolitical position in a sense between uh, China and Russia has also caused problems for for Kazakhstan. Um, At the time of independence there were significant uh, unresolved border disputes uh, with the PRC right along the frontier. Um, And and these were a pressing concern. Um, Another major issue structuring Kazakhstan's uh, response, foreign policy response is the fact that Kazakhstan is, in many respects, a a neo-patrimonial authoritarian uh, regime led by this uh, gentleman here, President Sultan uh, Nazarbayev, who is, at at this stage, Kazakhstan's first and only uh, president. Um, Now, it's a a neo-patrimonial regime uh, in the sense that Uh, It's not only based on traditional clan-based networks, uh, but also uh, runs in parallel with more modern or rational uh, uh, networks of of political and economic influence, largely stemming from uh, the elite's interests in in, in Kazakhstan's hydrocarbon uh, sector. Um, Freedom House, for example, has has characterised... uh, Kazakhstan since 1991 1991, uh, as not free, and its 2012 score was 5.5 on a scale of 1 to 7, and 1 being free and 7 not free. Um, And just as as an aside, this particular... ..in the bottom left-hand corner, just to give you a flavour of the extent to which Nazarbayev dominates uh, Kazakhstan... is. That is a poster that was promoting his the film in 2011, which is about his, his life, uh, produced by the Kazakh National Film Company, and he actually makes a number of star appearances in it at the beginning and the end of the movie. Um, it's a very hagiographical uh, approach uh, uh, to, to Nazarbayev. Now, given all these issues, um, Sally Cummings, uh, who has written extensively on independent Kazakhstan, has suggested that... Uh, in the immediate post-independence period uh, the elite led by Nazarbayev grappled to legitimate itself to itself uh, to the population, to the outside world it had to justify the existence of a new state that could not automatically claim to be owned by the Kazakhs or to be visibly occupied by ethnic group ruling in the name of its co-ethnics so in a sense Kazakhstan had this foundational insecurity um, in in particular the the ruling regime Um, And this has been illustrated over time, not only its foreign policy, but also domestic policy. Um, One that kind of brings this to the fore and has been noted often uh, is the fact that uh, Nazarbayev chose to move Kazakhstan's capital uh, from Almaty down here close to the Chinese frontier to to Astana in 1997. Um, And the reasons for doing so are are interesting in terms of this idea of legitimation. Um, Nazarbayev stated... In the, at the time, uh, that in a sense Almaty was too close to the Chinese frontier for his for his comfort. Um, secondly, he suggested that Astana would be a symbol of, of the new Kazakhstan. Not only would it be the capital of Kazakhstan, it would also be, in his terms, the capital of Eurasia. And this is a, a theme that uh, pops up continuously in, in his statements you know, on foreign policy. So, in a sense, this... Uh, three-level struggle for legitimation that Cummings referred to um, has meant that uh, Kazakhstan has had to pursue, in Alastair and Johnson's terms, positive foreign policy processes, i.e. had to appeal uh, and legitimise the government to the titular ethnic group, i.e. the the Kazakhs, uh, the Russians and also the wider world. Um, So the regime was not able, as other post-Soviet regimes have done in the past, to fall back on an exclusive Kazakh nationalism, for example, uh, as this would ultimately threaten the state's existence. So this has formed the basis of Kazakhstan's uh, multi-vector foreign policy, which in a sense has been authored by Nazarbayev himself, and according to the President, uh, the multi- multi-vector multi foreign policy uh, seeks, to, uh, seeks mutually advantageous and good neighbourly relations of confidence on the whole of the Eurasian continent in order to ensure the independence and sovereignty of Kazakhstan, to accelerate the country's economic development and raise its standing worldwide. Now, ultimately, in the 1990s, this was about escaping uh, Russian uh, hegemony and establishing an independent foreign policy. Uh, but to do do that simultaneously without undermining Kazakhstan's uh, necessary functional relationship uh, with Russia at the time, um, which primarily uh, concerned security issues but also economic issues as much of Kazakhstan's industrial infrastructure was was linked uh, to to Russia. So the influence of of, of this particular issue has been far-reaching in terms of Kazakhstan's foreign policy. Uh, Throughout the 90s, the multi factor approach, in a sense, uh, led to Nazarbayev focusing on many uh, projects of integration um, within the post-Soviet space. For example, the the CIS, the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, the CSTO, uh, to reassure the Russians on the one hand, uh, but also with various uh, regional and multilateral organisations beyond the post-Soviet space. Um, pardon me, such as uh, NATO's Partnership for Peace, uh, the organisation of the Islamic Conference, and the OSCE, for example. Um, And since that time, Nazarbayev has sort of made a a fetish in a sense of floating various multilateral initiatives. Uh, One of his favourites is the Conference on Interaction and Confidence-Building Measures in Asia, uh, the Eurasian Union, which he proposed initially in 1994 and again uh, in 2011, and a number of other uh, initiatives as well. Um, beyond that, Kazakhstan has sought and secured chairmanships of various regional and multilateral organisations. Um, this sort of foreign policy activism and hyperactivity, in a sense, uh, has has led one scholar, Edward Schatz, who has written... Extensively on, on this issue to suggest that Nazarbayev sought to portray an image of, of a state elite that was engaged internationally and therefore deserving of respect at home. Uh, so, in his terms, a key driver of Kazakhstan's foreign policy has been to achieve international legitimacy uh, through achieving uh, international recognition through act- activism in, in these particular bodies, organisations and so forth, uh, to bolster... What might have been weak domestic legitimacy, particularly in the 90s, and this theme has has continued. Um, uh, and this is just a few images of Nazarbayev, the international statesman, which he likes to, which the Kazakh media likes to play up. Um, most recently, of course, Nazarbayev hosted the, the latest round of the P5 Plus One talks on Iran's uh, nuclear program. So it's very much a, a key facet of Nazarbayev's approach to foreign policy. And in this particular issue uh, of seeking international legitimacy in a sense and recognition uh, is really illustrated by Kazakhstan's response to uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, Borat Sagdev character, the supposed Kazakh journalist. This is a particularly interesting case. There's actually quite an extensive literature on, on Borat in Kazakhstan, um, funnily enough. Um, and of course, it, what's interesting is that it led to a concerted campaign by the Kazakh government. Uh, to, in a sense, counter what it perceives as the negative implications of, of, of Borat. Um, so it, used to, it, it points to, for example, the creation of the modern capital city of, of Kazakhstan, Astana, uh, which, as you can see here, uh, I think one, one observer has uh, characterised it as a cross between Dubai and Pyongyang. Um, which, which, which is interesting because it, it, there's some of that socialist architecture in a sense combined with the glitzy uh, approach of Dubai. But beyond that, there was also a major international uh, campaign by the Kazakh government taking out uh, prominent advertisements, particularly in US newspapers and uh, prominent US magazines and journals, for example, uh, the one on here, uh, the one on the right screen, Surprising Kazakhstan, was about a 20-page supplement that was in uh, foreign policy uh, in 2007, I think, from memory. So the Kazakh government took this extremely seriously and this again relates back to this issue of uh, the regime's ability to legitimate itself. Um, in these particular advertisements, for example, uh, Kazakh spokesman foreign ministry spokesman, also for the, spokesman for the president, continually stressed uh, Kazakhstan's Eurasian identity rather than its Central Asian identity, given, uh, essentially made on the judgement that Central Asia had too many negative connotations, particularly in, in North America at the time. So this is, this is a, a key, key theme. So in terms of Kazakhs, Kazakhstan's foreign policy generally, is has essentially been framed by this struggle for legitimation and also recognition by the international community. Um, so that's Kazakhstan's foreign policy in general. So I'll just switch quickly to uh, Kazakhstan's foreign policy uh, vis-a-vis China. While Russia was the number one priority for, for Kazakhstan in the early 90s, China has increasingly become, if not number one priority, certainly on par uh, with Russia, and... Uh, particularly from the late 90s onwards. Um, and, and this is due to a, a number of factors. Uh, firstly, China uh, impacts very heavily on Kazakhstan's... Uh, the Nazarbayev regime, rather, its ability to to deliver on uh, its stated goal of achieving independence and sovereignty of Kazakhstan, the economic development of Kazakhstan, and also achieving heightened international standing or prestige uh, for Kazakhstan. Uh, China impacts on Kazakhstan's ability to do this uh, a number of specific ways. In terms of independence and sovereignty, uh, I've already noted China's long standing territorial disputes with Kazakhstan. So this directly relates to the regime's uh, ability uh, to ensure the country's sovereignty. There is also the, the Uyghur issue, which, while neutralised to an extent now, is still under the surface in Kazakhstan. I'll talk about that a bit towards the end. Uh, in terms of economic development, China play, is playing an increasing role here. For the Kazakh government. China is, as we all know, a major importer of oil and gas and natural resources, of which Kazakhstan has significant amounts. Um, China is also a major investor in the Kazakh economy, again mainly in the oil and gas sectors, but also increasingly in the financial sector. In terms of international standing and prestige, uh, the Nazarbayev regime views close relations with China as, a, as the world's rising power to be a uh, uh, contributing to, to uh, Kazakhstan's image in particular Nazarbayev's image as a, as a leading international statesman uh, in, in the economic sphere in particular uh, there is a complementarity between uh, Chinese and Kazakh int- interests um, for the for the Chinese uh, there is obviously an interest in importing and diversifying its sources of oil and uh, natural resources and for the Kazakhs a, a major issue, Uh, since the late 1990s has been to diversify its uh, export routes uh, for its uh, oil and natural gas, which previously, in a sense, had been directed almost solely through Russian-owned pipelines. So China has played a role in, in a sense, liberating... Kazakhstan's energy sector from that Russian monopoly. Just to give you a flavour of the scale of China's role in in the Kazakh uh, oil and gas sector in 2005 the China National Petroleum Corporation CNPC acquired Petro Kazakhstan a formerly state owned uh, Kazakh oil and gas company for around four. $4.18 $4.18 billion US dollars. This, combined with a number of other smaller acquisitions, uh, has meant that Chinese-owned companies now control around a quarter of all Kazakh oil production. So China has a, has a key interest here, and, it, and this concerns some Kazakh observers as an as a, as a undue means of Chinese influence in the, the Kazakh economy. Beyond that, uh, Nazarbayev visited Beijing in 2011. He also signed a number of further agreements which demonstrate China's continued... Uh, growing role uh, in Kazakhstan, uh, one of which was to establish a, a Sino Kazakh free trade zone, uh, which concerns Kazakh observers for a number of other reasons, which I'll hopefully get to shortly, uh, and also uh, one a, a remarkable deal uh, between China and Kazakhstan for Kazakhstan to supply China with around 50,000 tons of uranium uh, within the next decade, although the details have to be ironed out. It constitutes a a fairly big deal. In terms of the the security sphere, there is also a complementarity of interest between China and Kazakhstan. For Kazakhstan, as I've already mentioned, um, a key goal uh, since independence has been to diversify its foreign policy, to to diversify its relations with other states, in a sense to break free of the historically determined relationship with Russia and so China plays an obvious foil uh, to the Russians in Central Asia. For China, the initial basis of relations with Kazakhstan were essentially domestic, just to maintain security in Xinjiang, to resolve uh, the border disputes and to negate the, the Uyghur diaspora issue. Now, over time, these issue, uh, these interests have developed, in particular through the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, which has, in a sense, instituted Chinese cooperation with the Central Asian states. Uh, and, and and China, Kazakhstan and Russia, in a sense, make up the dominant players in the SCO. And again, the Kazakh involvement in the SCO allows it the potential to play off Russia and China within the the multilateral context. However, is there an ideological or normative level to the relationship between China and Kazakhstan? That is, are the Kazakhs attracted in any way, in in ideological terms, to the Chinese model, quote-unquote? I suggest that this is limited. Um for a number of reasons. Firstly, there is uh, a lot of negative baggage uh, from from the Soviet era, uh, particularly with the existing political elite, Nazarbayev himself being a a, a leading Kazakh politician during Soviet times in the the early to mid-'80s. There's also the traditional Kazakh nomadic uh, antipathy towards China and also to the Russians, but it's beside the point at the moment. However, uh, in in the mid-'90s, there was some appeal uh, to Nazarbayev in terms of the China model, uh, the, the capitalist authoritarian one-party state model that the uh, Communist Party ha- has developed uh, in China. However, Nazarbayev has since that time tended to prefer what he, uh, the Southeast Asian model of the tiger economies. He often refers to, to Kazakhstan as wanting to become a Central Asian snow leopard, which is interesting in itself. However... After various crises in Central Asia, and also Kazakhstan, for example, he has often used the China model as a crutch. For example, after the Andijan incident in Uzbekistan in 2004, where the Uzbek authorities uh, opened fire on a large demonstration and so forth, which led to a souring of relations between Uzbekistan and, and the United States, Nazarbayev oppose the US democracy promotion agenda at the time with China's focus on non-interference, win-win relations uh, and sovereign equality, which it's embedded in the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation. So as the SCO has progressed, Nazarbayev has used it uh, as a counterpoint, for example, as I've just mentioned, to the democracy promotion agenda of the West, but also as a foil to uh, the revived nationalism and imperialism, in a sense, of, of Putin's Russia. Uh, So China is a a convenient fall to to these powers. So in terms of how it's portrayed by the Kazakh elite, China is in a sense portrayed in positive terms, particularly in security and economic terms for the the reasons I've just noted. Chinese investment in the Kazakh economy, for example, is trumpeted uh, by the Kazakh media and by Nazarbayev himself as not only good for the economy but also assisting uh, the economy's development to move away, to to diversify from the hydrocarbon sector. In security terms, bilateral and multilateral ties with the PRC are seen as being crucial to ensuring Kazakhstan's independence and sovereignty by enabling it to balance uh, against the Russians on the one hand. So ultimately Sino-Kazakh relations from the Kazakh point of view are, are justified in purely pragmatic terms. Um, they they contribute to the regime's stated goals of of, of ensuring Kazakh independence, ensuring its economic development and making it a regionally and internationally respected actor. So then how does this official uh, view uh, sit with other views within Kazakhstan? So I've chosen to look at a a range of what might be termed expert uh, opinion and also societal views of China. But I just note that in terms of looking at expert and societal opinion in in Kazakhstan, it's... there are a number of problematic issue issues firstly in terms of the expert view there is in fact a limited uh, uh, a limited range of expertise on China and Kazakhstan which might sound surprising but i'll just quickly talk about why that might be the case. Secondly is the close relationship between the Kazakh uh, universities and think tanks on the one hand and government and bureaucracy on the other. Uh, and finally uh, ascertaining public opinion quote unquote, in Kazakhstan is difficult given the, the nature of the political system. However there are, have been a number of opinion polls run by a number of US agencies. So why is Kazakh expert opinion difficult? Sorry, why is it, why is it limited? Largely it's limited Due to the legacies of the Soviet era, where the intellectual elites of the Soviet Central Asian republics were, were in a sense, compelled uh, to focus on their own uh, nationality rather than on any external civilizations. And so it was very much about isolating Central Asia from the contiguous regions, given various security threats at the time. In terms of Sinology itself, Sinology tended to be the preserve of ethnic Russians, and in particular the major institutes in Moscow and St Petersburg. And if it did exist in the Central Asian (coughs) Republics, it was highly politicised, given the the, uh, close Sino-Soviet ties in the 50s and then the the split of the 1960s and 70s. So in in terms of the Kazakh context in particular, that politicisation was even further heightened due to the fact that many of the Sinologists that existed in Kazakhstan during the Soviet era were in fact from ethnic minorities themselves. So you had a number of Uyghurs and Huys, uh, the Chinese Muslims who live in in Kazakhstan as well, who were primarily involved in in China studies. And of course that carried with it a number of political implications and risks for those individuals. So it was a tendency uh, for those those people to focus on largely historical questions and ignore politics and contemporary uh, history in particular. So after independence in 1991, there was a a limited uh, expertise to draw on. What expertise there is resides primarily in uh, the Institute of Strategic Studies, which is based in Almaty, and also a number of smaller think tanks. Now, unlike uh, a number of think tanks throughout the Western world, the think tanks in Kazakhstan tend to rely for funding on on the government. Uh, So you have sort of a very limited room to manoeuvre in terms of expressing uh, criticism of the, of the government's approach. Now, the, the Kazakh Institute of Strategic Studies, which I've just mentioned, is probably the most important. It contains uh, the most China expertise and it's also the most closely related, directly related to Nazarbayev's presidential administration itself. Um, so they, have to, they rely very exclusively on his largesse uh, to function. So due to these factors, a, number of, uh, a Kazakh uh, sinologist, one of the most prominent, Konstantin Sarazenkin, um, who's at the uh, Kazakh uh, Institute for Tr- Strategic Studies, has, has blamed the Soviet legacy, the connection to uh, government, for what he terms the, uh, the, the generation of myths and phobias about China rather than actual study of contemporary China. Um, Despite this, it's still possible to identify a a range of issues upon which expert opinion and also public opinion coincide. Now, expert opinion tends to be a little bit more critical and sceptical than the official view, but it's nothing compared to the open anti-Chinese flavour of much public opinion. Uh, in Kazakhstan. So, so what are what are these issues? Just briefly talk about five, five major ones that expert and public opinion uh, converge on. The first is economic dependency. The second is the Uyghur and Xinjiang issues. The third is the threat of Chinese settlement and migration to Kazakhstan. Uh, the fourth is water security. And, and the final one, which in a sense encapsulates all of them, is the issue of corruption and lack of transparency about policy making towards China and Kazakhstan so in terms of of economic dependency um, there is much criticism from from, uh, Kazakh experts about uh, Kazakh government's policy and reliance on its hydrocarbon resources as turning itself into a resource appendage uh, of of the PRC so this focus on the oil and gas sector these people suggest is atrophying other sectors of of the Kazakh economy and in a sense that they're correct. Around two thirds of Kazakh GDP at the moment is derived from the oil and gas sector. In terms of China's role in the oil and gas sector, it's pretty much a magnet for Kazakh expert and societal criticism. Uh, and this is due to a, to a number of factors. Beyond the issue of China controlling 25% of all Kazakh oil and gas production, uh, there's concern about uh, the labour practices of Chinese companies uh, in Kazakhstan. In particular, when they do employ uh, Kazakh workers, it's generally at much lower wages than it. And they give them the most difficult jobs beyond that they also tend to import Chinese labor directly into their operations in Kazakhstan, and they essentially live in closed compounds uh, in, in the locations in which those companies are operating so there 's very little flow on into to to regional economy in, in that in that sense the most interesting recent example of that um, is a Chinese connection to the, the Nazan incident uh, which occurred in, in December last year in Kazakhstan, one of, uh, one of the most notable aspects of public protest in Kazakhstan in recent times. Um, striking all, all workers, uh, were fired upon by police and security forces, killed about 16 people. Now the China connection here is that the oil company that the workers were striking against uh, KMG is half owned by Chinese interests. In particular, China International Trust and Investment Corporation. So there is why, and their protest was essentially about labour practices by by KMG and by extension the influence of uh, of Chinese corporations on, on labour practices in the oil sector. Um, given that I haven't got much time, I might skip that particular issue and talk quickly about the Xinjiang and Uyghur issues. Experts and public opinion, again, are critical about China's handling of these issues. Konstantin Sarazenkin again, argues that what he terms the intensified signification program in Xinjiang has, in a sense, made Islamism, radical Islamism, an ideology of national liberation for young Uyghurs. Now, this is important for, for, for Kazakhstan's own security, given uh, the fact that around 250,000 Uyghurs currently reside uh, in the country. This is a concern, as there are a number of reports about Chinese intelligence being actively involved in the, the repression of, of various Uyghur organisations throughout the 90s and also into the 2000s in Kazakhstan. So uh, there is widespread criticism about the government, in a sense, allowing this to happen. I mean, there's very little proof that's it's actually occurred, but in a sense it's been lodged in the public imagination that this has occurred and the government allowed it to occur. So this undermines uh, Nazarbayev's claim that he's, he's protecting the independence of Kazakhstan. Moving very quickly to the, to the threat of Chinese migration... Now, this, in a sense, in terms of Cyrus Enkin's terms, is very much a myth. Um, there are regular reports in the Kazakh uh, media uh, that, and also the Russian media that around three hundred to half, three hundred thousand to half a million Chinese migrants are currently residing in Kazakhstan. The official figure seems to be only in the thousands, and much of these tend to be temporary uh, migrants, in a sense, employed in the oil and gas sectors and so forth. However, this fear is, in a sense, driven by the demography, of Kazakh- the demography of Kazakhstan. It's sparsely populated with only 17 million people. And also public fears about uh, what has happened in Xinjiang, in a sense, being a prelude to what the Chinese have in store for, for, for the sparsely populate- populated regions of Kazakhstan. Now, this myth has been given further credence by Nazarbayev himself. Uh, in 2000 and December 2009, he, he made public that the Chinese had asked, in inverted commas, Kazakhstan uh, to, to lease it one million hectares of Kazakh land along the frontier for, for, for Chinese farmers to farm soya beans and so forth. Now, this generated a wave of anti-Chinese protest, and an opinion poll at the time found that 81% of Kazakhs were, were opposed to this plan. And at the time, one 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 particular uh, uh, prominent expert, in a sense, whose uh, name is Murat, Ozov, who used to, who was Kazakhstan's ambassador to China in the early 90s. He's since turned virulently anti-Chinese. He suggested that the Chinese are masters in the art of bribery on different levels. What kind of China asked Kazakhstan to make available one million hectares of land to grow soy beans? The same China that gave Kazakhstan US $10 billion in credit during one of the President's recent trips to China. So this touches on... Uh, the issue of transparency in China policy making and also corruption in, in Kazakhstan. So, given the time, I'll just quickly end with, with that particular issue. The, the idea that Kazakhstan, uh, that policy on, on China and Kazakhstan is made by a China lobby uh, that has been, in a sense, bought by, Jing, by Beijing is widespread. And one example, in a sense, uh, brings this out. A man called Timur Kulubayev, who happens to be President Nazarbayev's son in law. He's also one of the richest men in Kazakhstan. Uh, According to Forbes magazine, he has a personal wealth of around $1.2 billion. This doesn't include the wealth of his wife, uh, Nazarbayev's daughter, vast interests in the Kazakh economy, television networks and so forth. Um, Kulibayev, however has been described uh, by the U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan in, in one of the WikiLeaks as the ultimate controller of 90% of the Kazakh economy. Uh, he's not only chairman of the National Nuclear Energy Agency, he's the vice-chairman cha- of Kazmone Gas, the major state oil corporation in Kazakhstan, chairman of the National Railway Company, and also the chairman of Kazakhstan's Sovereign Wealth Fund. So he has vast interest. Now... The connection to China is, is largely concerns his role as Vice Chairman of the State Oil Corporation, KMG. There are there are allegations that in two thousand and three, when CNPC acquired Petro Kazakhstan, which was the subsidiary of KMG, that he accepted a one hundred and sixty three million dollar bribe directly from CNPC to smooth uh, that particular deal. And since then, there has been more information that's come out that has suggested that that in fact occurred. So. For a number of, of Kazakh critics of the, the regime, the issue is not so much the China threat, but rather uh, the corruptibility of Kazakh officials themselves and the corruptibility of the regime, which form, form, forms the ultimate threat. So this relates back again to the, to, to the regime being a neo-patrimonial regime. It essentially blurs the lines between the p- public and private interests. And this is most particularly felt in the, in the economic interests of the Nazarbayev family itself, uh, which is not only Nazarbayev and his daughters, but also his, his various son-in-laws, nephews and so forth, which are involved at all levels of Kazakh, Kazakhstan's political system and also in its business elites. So how then does Kazakhstan's multi-vector foreign policy help in mediating this emerging tension between the two? Well, I'd suggest that ultimately it's a hedging strategy. But it's a hedging strategy that provides uh, Nazarbayev with a ready-made strategic flexibility in the sense that he can, at any point, recalibrate his rhetoric against the Chinese. It's it's already there. He practiced it in the 90s vis-a-vis Russia. He can practice it again uh, vis-a-vis the Chinese. So despite the talk of, of win-win Sino-Kazakh ties, um, the regime... Uh, has always been careful to restate over and over again, if you look at all their programmatic foreign policy documents, that Russia remains the closest ally that Kazakhstan has. Regardless of how close the the relationship with China gets, Russia is always, in a sense, the the insurance policy. However, the intensification of the elite societal divide that I've tried to quickly sketch out on on China challenges the elite's... uh, uh, The elites' uh, claims to legitimacy uh, within the country it it, it makes things more uh, problematic, and the neo-patrimonial nature of political authority in Kazakhstan increases that that problematic nature, blurs that line between public and private interests. It also uh, increases uh, the public scepticism about policy making on China, there's no transparency and so forth. But ultimately it intensifies the power of, of what Syrizen can term the myths and phobias uh, about China because it plays into those myths. Uh, it essentially undermines the regime's claims uh, to be strengthening uh, Kazakhstan's sovereignty and independence uh, by allowing nefarious, in, in the public imagination, nefarious Chinese interest to, to spread its tentacles throughout the country. So I'll just finish there. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.